Hi, and welcome to this installment of our new books at the Heyman Center panel podcast, sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, Columbia University Libraries, Public Books, the Department of English and Comparative Literature, the Department of Sociology, the Urban Design Program, the Center for Spatial Research, and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Anne Levitsky. Today's podcast celebrates Eric Klinenberg's book, Palaces for the People, and features the author in conversation with three Columbia professors, Old Dominion Foundation professor in the humanities Bruce Robbins, professor of sociology Seamus Kahn, and associate professor at the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation, and director of the Urban Design Program, Kate Orff. I'll bring you the panel in its entirety. Let us begin. I am Sharon Marcus, a professor in the Department of English and Comparative Literature and the editor of Public Books. And I'm the moderator and organizer. And you know if you're here, you saw the poster, so you know that this is an event to discuss and celebrate Eric Heinberg's new book, Houses for the People. In a time when Every day it seems we read that we're more polarized than ever, and however inured we might be to those pronouncements, it's hard not to feel at least once a week that the world as we know it is coming to an end. Eric has written a book to ask how in our social interactions, in our physical spaces, in our communities, we can try to build connection and resilience. And so it's great face-to-face interaction is an important part of what he talks about in universities at their best or places that can promote and be the kinds of infra- social infrastructure he's discussing. And so it's great to see so many people here present for a face-to-face discussion of a book. I am going to begin by very briefly introducing each person, even though nobody here really needs an introduction. Still. And then Eric will talk about his book for about 10 to 15 minutes, just so that we all are on the same page about what its key claims are. And then each of the people here will respond with their thoughts. And then we will have a lot of time for questions and discussion as a whole. So Eric Kleinenberg is professor of sociology and director of the Institute for Public Knowledge at New York University. He is the author of the acclaimed books Going Solo, Heat Wave, and Fighting for Air, and co-author of the number one bestseller Modern Romance. His most recent book, Palaces for the People, How Social Infrastructure Can Help Fight Inequality, Polarization, and the Decline of Civic Life, was published in 2018. And just today, we made it onto NPR's Best Books of 2018. They account for 99% of all book sales in this country. That is very good news. And in addition to the books he has published and his scholarly writing, Eric has contributed to The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, and This American Life. Bruce Robbins is the Old Dominion Foundation Professor in the Humanities at Columbia. And his latest of many books is The Beneficiary, which was published by Duke University Press in 2017. He's also the director of a documentary entitled Some of My Best Friends Are Zionists, which is available online at bestfriendsfilm.com. So I'm going to introduce people in the order that they're sitting, going down the line. So next we have Seamus Khan who is professor and chair of the sociology department here at Columbia University and also currently edits the journal Public Culture. 
He's the author of Privilege, The Making of an Adolescent Elite at St. Paul's School, published by Princeton in 2011, and uh, The Practice of Research, published by Oxford in 2013, co-authored with Dana Fisher, and he's completing a book called Exceptional, The Astors, Elite New York, and the Story of American Inequality, which will also be out from Princeton. And last but definitely not least, we have Kate Orff, who is a registered landscape architect and the founder of SCAPE, a New York-based design practice. She is an associate professor at Columbia's GSEP School and director of our urban design program. Her activist and visionary work on design for climate dynamics has been shared and developed in collaboration with arts institutions, governments, and scholars worldwide. So without further ado, Eric. Tell us Thank, you. Thank you. Can I take your phone so I can? I'm just going to make a couple calls. I want to know, uh, <laughs> I want to know how hard doing time wise. So it's lovely to be here. Uh, Sharon, thank you for organizing this. Thank you to the Haven Center for putting this on. And um, this is somewhat awkward for me because the three people who are going to be speaking about the book are all people uh, I work with and kind of love in some way. And so you're going to. Just I, wait. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm about to say that could mean that it's going to come across uh, even more explosively and harshly than I anticipate. But um, uh, any criticism, which I hope I get, will come from a loving place. Uh, these are really special people. So um, uh, this was, has been a very weird few months for me. I don't know how you are all feeling, but um, I wrote this book about how to rebuild society. Um, and people started saying this is an optimistic book. And I'm like a kind of a difficult person. No one's ever accused me of being an optimist, and I had to figure out what was going on with myself. And um, I realized that uh, I, I could be alone here. I, you tell me if, if I'm the only one who's been having this experience, but this book came out of a moment where I had just gotten exhausted from having the same conversation about what I've just come to call the situation. Uh, because I, 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 do you feel like this is happening to you also? I mean, yeah, the, the nice thing about calling it the situation is you can just project whatever conversation you're having into it. And, and, the, and the funny thing about this moment is it kind of doesn't really matter what your politics are. I mean, I know we're here on the Upper West Side of Columbia and everybody's got the same views, more or less, but, but um, you know, no matter whether you're winning or losing at the moment, you have this complaint about the situation, right? Which is a very bizarre feature of our time. And um, I had gotten exhausted from that. I couldn't take it anymore. And I started to think about how would you put pieces back together again? You know, what, what would you do if you wanted to rebuild some sense of common purpose? And I want to know, I want you to know before we get into this, that. Yes, I'm a pretty naive person, but I am, I, I am completely aware of the situation, is what I want you to know. Like I, I, I am in the situation with you, and I, I recognize basically that the house is on fire. And at the same time, this book is coming from a place that says, if the house is on fire and all we're doing is complaining about the situation, we're going to be in really bad shape tomorrow and the day after and the day after, and at some point, the house will not be on fire, or the house will be, the fire will be contained in some way, and there'll be some moment of possibility where we have a chance to build something. And if what we have in our arsenal is a whole set of things that we're upset about, that won't be very productive. And so the book is in some way my attempt to 
put together a blueprint for what it means to put things together again. No, doesn't mean that I'm not aware of it. We can talk about the situation if you like, but, but that was not my goal coming here tonight. So the, the, when Kate talks, I hope she's going to say something about the way that she and I met, which is in this Rebuild by Design competition a few years ago. So um, I had um, written a book about a heat wave in Chicago where enormous numbers of people died in a very short period of time. And the puzzle that drove one of the chapters was why is it that there were a bunch of neighborhoods in Chicago that looked really similar on paper, that looked like they'd had the same levels of vulnerability. And some of those neighborhoods did really badly during this heat wave, which is what you would have expected. But some of the neighborhoods, there's some seats here if you guys want to come in, it's fine. So, some of the neighborhoods that look like, the, they look the same demographically on paper. Go ahead, it's okay. Um, and they, you can they, sit in the seats marked reserved. They are no longer reserved. <laughs> so um, and there's, there's more seats here. Um, so, so, Ren, come join us. Um, <laughs> see, it's all about this. Like, you know, you have to be able to sit in a room together. So, um, so some of the neighborhoods that looked the same as the places that were really hit hard turned out to be the most resilient and safest places in the city, and that was very puzzling, right? The, demographically, you wouldn't have been able to predict it if you just looked at the numbers, but something something was going on. Like there are a bunch of neighborhoods that should have done really badly. Literally, like, imagine these two neighborhoods, demographically the same, like, there's this side of the room, and there's this side of the room, and this side of the room has catastrophically high death rates during this disaster, and this side of the room, which should basically be the same, turns out to be, like, safer than the wealthiest parts of the city. And that was a puzzle, and it turned out what I discovered from doing field work is that the difference between these two places wasn't the composition of the people, it was really the composition of the, what I came to call the social infrastructure. The, which I define in this book as the physical places that shape our interactions. And I came to see this social infrastructure as being something that's very real, as real as the infrastructure for water or for transit uh, or for electricity. Um, even though we don't have a concept for it, it's, it's there. And part of this book is a, an attempt to flesh out what it, what it is so that you can see it as you move through the world and understand how it shapes social life. A lot of our theories about why social life works <coughs> well, why civic life works well, have to do with our cultural preferences, right? We think that these things are culturally driven or they're about or, you know, membership for voluntary organizations from the Tocqueville and Putnam tradition. And I'm making a different kind of argument, which is that there's, there's a, a set of physical features of places that shape the way that people interact. And if you live in this neighborhood, it turns out what, what happened is that you had a lot of places that were bombed out, uh, blocks that had massive abandonment, abandoned houses, empty lots, not a lot of commercial activity, broken sidewalks, parks that were treacherous, all these conditions that would kind of keep you indoors. If you lived in this side of the, of, of the neighborhood, um, a lot of poverty, a lot of older people living alone, but the physical infrastructure of the neighborhood was intact. Very few uh, empty lots and abandoned buildings, things like that. I, that's what I came to conceive of as social infrastructure. So fast forward a bunch of years. I moved to New York. Sandy happens. Um, I, I'm running this thing called the Institute for Public Knowledge. We decided we're going to do a lot of work on New York City and Sandy and, and climate change and how do we think about our future. And I start writing lots of articles, um, organizing events. And I get this call out of the blue from the Obama administration asking if I wanted to be the research director for this thing called the Rebuild by Design competition where they had these kind of brilliant set of teams from around the world that had competed, 150 teams of engineers and architects and landscape architects all wanted to compete for what was almost $2 billion of public money 
at the end of the day. So who wouldn't want to compete for that? So, um, so I said, yeah, so I did this thing. And then there were 10 final teams. Kate Orff led one of them um, that were ultimately trying to come up with design ideas for rebuilding this region that was affected by Sandy for 21st century threats. Maybe you guys know this, but like the law in the United States has been that if a place gets devastated in a natural disaster and you try to get federal money from FEMA to, to rebuild, the law has been you can't build back anything that was better than what was there before. Because they don't, the federal government doesn't want local governments to take advantage of federal largesse, right? So when you're living in a, in a world that's very stable, maybe that makes a little sense. When you're living in a world where like, the sea levels are rising, it's getting hotter, the storm surge is getting higher, that doesn't make a lot of sense. So this competition was able to skirt those laws and we were able to do some really exciting and interesting things that involve building new kinds of infrastructure. And as part of, the, of my job, we had a nine month process of taking teams through um, research and uh, outreach with local stakeholders and the kind of collaborative participatory design process. And that's, you know, that's, that's how I met Kate. And my job as research director was to bring these 10 teams that were the finalists around the region because they didn't have plans that they had developed already. So I'm going to get to the heart of the story. So there's one day when I, I'm showing this team around a poor neighborhood in Brooklyn, and I had been pushing on them this idea that social infrastructure could be part of their climate planning for Rebuild by Design, right? So conventionally, if you've got a, a design competition and you're dealing with climate change, you're going to think about, like, how are we going to strengthen the electrical grid, right? Or how are we going to build a big seawall that's going to keep the water out? And in fact, maybe some of you guys remember this. Were you here after Sandy? Can you raise your hand if you were here after Sandy? You might remember this. The big idea that a lot of people in the engineering community had for how we're going to strengthen New York City and make a more resilient New York City after Sandy was, tell me if this phrase sounds familiar. Oh my god, there's a person up there. Hi. Um, <laughs> do, you remember, do you remember this, this phrase? Build a wall. That, that, Kate, do you remember that? That was yeah. the big engineers were like, oh, you know what we've got to do to protect New York City? Because we believe in climate change and we believe in science and we're progressive. We're going to build walls. Right? That was a very powerful idea. And what, what I was saying to the teams was, hey, you know, maybe that's not such a great idea. Um, first of all, like, not everybody, don't tell people, not everybody in the city knows it, but very close to here, there's this magical place called New Jersey. And if you build a wall to block the water from coming into Manhattan, it, it, the water and the sediment don't just evaporate. Like, they move <laughs> towards this place, New Jersey. So, so then, so then, so, so then you want to like say, okay, we can include New Jersey in the plan. And quite inconveniently, the coastline continues, right? And like <laughs> Delaware and Maryland and Virginia and right North Carolina. It's so frustrating. <laughs> and so, like, building a wall turns out to be not a great possibility. And there are all these other kinds of interesting ways that we could live with water and protect ourselves from extreme climate events while also making life better all the time. And that involves thinking about social infrastructure as well as conventional infrastructure. It's pushing this idea on the teams. So one day I'm walking around with this amazing group of designers and they're planning a new prototype. Because when you're in a design competition, you want to do something awesome, right? You want to have like a great idea that is going to get you attention and is going to make a mark on the world. And they said, Eric, you know, thank you for the time. Um, Eric, uh, you know, we, we've been listening to you talk about social infrastructure. We get it. We've come up with this amazing prototype for a new building um, 
we're calling it a resilient center. And we're going to build it in this uh, poor city that could really use a resilient center. But our notion is that like this resilient center is scalable. And we're like, a after it succeeds, we're going to build it in other neighborhoods in the city. And then we're going to build it in cities around the country. It's like, we really think this is exciting. I was like, okay, that sounds really cool. Tell me about the resilient center. And they said, okay, Eric, here's, here's the concept for resilient center. We have this building and it's going to be like a big, you know, nice, spacious place, flexible space. And um, it, we're going to have the doors open as much as possible. It's going to be aggressively welcoming this building, this resilient center. We're really going to show people that we want them to come in. And we know from the conversation we've had with you that very old people and very young people tend to be really vulnerable during these extreme events. And we want everyone, we want them to know that when there's a crisis, they are at home in the resilient center. So we're going to do all sorts of special programming. And like young kids are going to know that like the resilient center is their place in the neighborhood where they're always welcome. And of course, like if you have programs for young people, you have to have programs for the parents and for the caretakers, whomever they are. And so we'll do all this stuff. And for older people, you know, we're going to have social things. And we want the, we really want this to be like a community hub. So let's probably it's be a good idea to have like machines in there and Wi-Fi access and you know classes that will bring people together. We're just we really think this is going to be amazing. And I said to them, that is a fantastic idea. Have you ever been to a library? <laughs> and, 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 you know, like, I, I, I think that they could be forgiven for not having made that connection because, you know, after all, we live at this time where, first of all, there is this emphasis on all our social problems need to have a solution that's, like, new and shiny, and it would be much better if it has a tech component. And, and we kind of think that the, the solutions to the problems of our time should come from you know, the marketplace and from creative people, right, innovators. And did any of you see this article that came out this summer in Forbes um, by an economist who argued that the library is obsolete? Do you remember this? Did anyone of you guys miss this? Some of you saw it? There's an argument in Forbes. It's like, the library is obsolete. You know, it's an economist who said, you show me the cost-benefit analysis that cashes out the value of the library for a community, it, we have to spend all this public money to have libraries around, and basically no one's using them anyway. Wouldn't it be better if we just replaced them with Amazon shops, <laughs> right? And it was an incredible statement, like an extreme but succinct and powerful statement of the way that we tend to think about these things. Because the truth is, I, th I, you know, I think we are in a moment where the people who run our biggest businesses, the people who are running government, uh, <coughs> people who are running philanthropies tend not to be the same people who are going to branch libraries, even though we have hundreds of them in the cities and branch libraries you know, around the country. And I think they, they fail to recognize just how lively and dynamic uh, libraries have become, how busy they are. In, in, and, and they're busy in ways that can't be uh, recognized if your main metric is how many books people are checking out because they're doing all kinds of other programming, whether it's, you know, teaching English as a second language or teaching citizens of classes or lending ties and business suits to people who are applying for jobs, which got some news in New York City, um, or, or book groups for older people, early literacy programs, multilingual literacy programs, all these extraordinary things, after school programs. I could go on about the library. But it occurred to me that, um, you know, in that moment, uh, and by the way, if you haven't seen the Forbes thing, the, 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 the reason why is because the librarians of the world united on Twitter uh, after this. And all these people wound up writing these extraordinarily eloquent statements about what libraries are doing, the way the libraries remain vital institutions, and Forbes took the article down uh, 36 hours later. <coughs> I thought it was a triumph and suggested to me that, that there's maybe something more interesting going on in the country than 
everyone thinks and, and, and understands. So um, I want to wrap up. So, so the way that, the, um, that, that my life changed um, kind of around the time of Rebuild by Design and when I realized that people searching for a resilience center didn't know that they had libraries is, boy, that's so obnoxious. And then I'm finished. People came in, I get 30 seconds for the people who <laughs> so, so, um, so I realized that um, there are some things that are working better than we realize. And that in the same way that um, when I wrote about these neighborhoods in Chicago, I did a weird thing for sociologists. I didn't only focus on what's wrong with you guys over there. You know, I also wanted to understand like, what's going on over here that's worth paying attention to. And this book, which was really written in the aftermath of the Trump election in 2016, and in this kind of dangerous turn towards authoritarianism, um, and this kind of moment where not only was democracy threatened, but the whole concept of a collective project of any form uh, was threatened. Um, I wanted to try to think of ways that um, social infrastructure is being used to create new bonds. And as it happens, there has been in the last um, several years a whole spate of um, research projects, scientific studies, some of which are my own original research projects, which I write about extensively in the book, and some of which are projects of others, which I try to report on, which I, th I came to think um, give us a new way of thinking about how to address a bunch of problems that we urgently need to address. And the problems include things like isolation and loneliness, um, things like health and education and crime, uh, but also things like polarization and climate change, which have you know, extraordinary urgency. And, the, and this book, Palaces for the People, which comes from you know, Andrew Carnegie's phrase, um, is his idea of like what a library could be, right? A place that exalts the everyday experience of people who are living in tenements and um, working in factories. And yeah, I, Carnegie was a, not a good man in many, many ways. He was a vicious employer. Um, he hurt people. He had more wealth than any human being should have. Um, and ideologically, he and I are not perfect sync. But he gave something like $250 billion in real dollars to various causes, and he helped to build 2,800 libraries that probably wouldn't exist, um, including many in the city without him, and so I thought it was an apt title for this. So Palaces for the People is, for me, a vision of what it would look like to invest in the public good, in the commons, and in, and in shared places where magical things happen when we come together. So I realize that you know this is... Um, maybe an ordinary night for you because you'd like to come to Columbia and have conversations like this, but there's a way in which like a room like this is, a, is, a, is an improbable room and a room that's capable of its own magic. And so um, I'm looking forward to whatever these guys conjure up. Thank you. <laughs> so before we start, Bruce, what's your preferred means for me to tell you the time. I want the music too. You want the music? <laughs> All right. How much time do we get? Um, we'll see. I'll set it for 10 minutes and then you okay. can go a little bit over that. Right. You think you want the music, but then when it plays as you're talking, it gets a little. <laughs> I'm looking forward to the experience. You're down. Uh, I may actually stop sooner. So I'm going to disappoint everybody. First of all, I have no voice, being a little sick. Um, but also, uh, 
I feel um, aggressively welcoming toward this, uh, this book, and therefore I'm going to find it hard to do the work of critique that I think, I don't know, I'm more used to doing. Um, one thing that, that got my approval in uh, Palaces for the People is a little odd, but I share it anyway. Um, in the 90s, I forget exactly when it was, uh, when I wasn't teaching at Columbia yet, and I, I came to a, a lecture at a conference at Columbia. Are you trying to tell me I need it? Yeah. You said okay. your voice was hurting. Well. It's true. Should I use this? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. Okay. Like this. Um, and Richard Rorty was one of the speakers. And Richard Rorty said, basically, uh, that the new left or the academic left or the cultural left or the hypercritical hyper left, which he didn't really like very much, but had some things to say about, needed to get together with the sort of old reformist left, which uh, especially associated with the labor unions, um, people who accomplished things and um, were proud of America and so on and so forth. And I had very mixed feelings about this at the time, which I won't share with you, but um, it has come to seem <coughs> wiser and wiser, uh, in particular vis-a-vis -vis what, what Eric was calling the situation. Some of you will have remembered that, will remember this, which went around um, around late November 2016, when certain aspects of the, the situation had just clarified themselves. Uh, and um, people were circulating these pages from 89 and 90 from the book that came out of that lecture, where Rorty says, <coughs> members of labor unions and unorganized, unskilled workers will sooner or later realize that their government is not even trying to prevent wages from sinking or to prevent jobs from being exported Around the same time, they will realize that suburban white-collar workers, themselves desperately afraid of being downsized, are not going to let themselves be taxed to provide social benefits for anyone else. At that point, something will crack. The non-suburban electorate will decide that the system has failed and start looking around for a strong man to vote for, someone willing to assure them that once he's elected, the smug bureaucrats, tricky lawyers, overpaid bond salesmen, and postmodernist professors will no longer be calling the shots. A scenario like that of Sinclair Lewis's novel, It Can't Happen Here, may then be played out. For once such a strong man takes office, nobody can predict what will happen. In 1932, most of the predictions made about what would happen if Hindenburg named Hitler chancellor were wildly over-optimistic. One thing that is very likely to happen is that the gains made in the past 40 years by black and brown Americans and by homosexuals will be wiped out. Jocular contempt for women will come back into fashion. The words nigger and kike will once again be heard in the workplace. All the sadism which the academic left has tried to make unacceptable to its students will come flooding back. All the resentment which badly educated Americans feel about having their manners dictated to them by college graduates we'll find an outlet. Um, this seems like a pretty good prophecy, you know, considering, uh, not to say more about the, the situation. And the general thing that I like, well, 
there are many things I like about Eric's book, um, but I, you know, I think it is a gesture of reconciliation between the sort of critical academic left and a sort of more positive, if you like, patriotic, uh, reformist. There are positive, constructive things that can be done. There are things that have been done. Uh, there are things that we can be proud of, kind of left. Um, and that just seems to me exactly right, right now. And so I'm really glad that he's written it. I should kind of stop, but I, I feel like I need to say something else. I'm not quite sure what it is. Um, one thing I'll say is in the form of a question, this is different. It's asking for a different narrative than the one that Eric just gave us, but some little voice in me said, it was when Eric discovered uh, old people doing virtual bowling together at libraries, that he had an answer to Robert Putnam, which was a beautiful, magical synthesis. It was bowling together in a physical place, but by means of virtuality. Was the book born at that moment? <laughs> you can, anyway, perhaps yeah. not. Um, so um, I'm taking advantage of, of sitting in front of you to say that I wrote about infrastructure once upon a time <laughs> in 2007. It's a really good essay called The Smell of Infrastructure. And I look back at it. It's about why nobody loves infrastructure. And Anyway, so I just advertise. Um, I didn't use the phrase social infrastructure. Um, I think I was more interested in a recognition of the necessary than social infrastructure, which isn't quite necessity, but more about what makes life worth living. Um, and it, it, since I feel like I need to tease Eric about something, I will tease him about the fact that Mark Zuckerberg uses the phrase social infrastructure also. <laughs> I mean, I really liked the part where, Mar where Eric was squirming a little over at the end, the, the fact that Mark Zuckerberg uses the expression social infrastructure. Um, and I think the, the issue that I'll raise, and it'll be the last thing I'll say, I'll just stop, is um, the fact that this phrase is attractive to the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world says something about how it needs to be kind of fought over. And the way to say it, maybe, is to say, where does the money come from? Mm -hmm. um, Andrew Carnegie suggests that, the example of our Andrew Carnegie suggests that one obvious source of this is philanthropy, corporate philanthropy, rich and evil people. Um, and the other one, of course, which uh, probably appeals to Eric as much as it appeals to me, is somehow seducing people into believing in taxation again. And you know that seems to me preferable. Um, I also don't have an answer to how you get, how you do that exactly, but it does seem to me kind of the name of the game, really, how you sort of turn this into you know, a case for taxes. And the music didn't even play. Famous. Yeah. <laughs> what's your timekeeping preference? Um, the 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 alarm is fine for me. Um, uh, I'm going to join Bruce in, in in praising this book. I uh, I I think this is the third time I've read it uh, in various drafts, and so I'll, I'll take credit. Um, <laughs> uh, 
But I, I want to pick up where you left off, and I'm going to make sort of five points here. Um, and, you know, the, the book ends with a discussion of Zuckerberg and his use of social infrastructure. And Eric says, you know, Zuckerberg's account here is really hollow. He is a thin uh, version of this idea. And Eric is sort of rightfully critical of the um, technologists and the ways in which they imagine um, that these kinds of virtual interactions uh, can produce the same thing as in person. Eric's not totally cynical about the usefulness of something like this, but he says, look, space matters. And this, uh, I always associate uh, Eric's work with the Chicago School, even though he didn't go to Chicago, I always think that you did, uh, in part because his first book was about Chicago. And so much of his work uh, builds off the ecological school. An ecological school meaning that spaces matter uh, for interactions. And um, in sociology, this is sort of a classic uh, account. So, um, you know, we, we know, you know, part of the conversation in this book that Eric and I have had, uh, one of which was about the, the work I've been doing here at Columbia on sexual assault, and often I sort of note, like, you know, that, that when two young people are hanging out together at a bar and then they decide to go back to their room together, they have three pieces of furniture, a desk, a chair, and a bed. Um, and that physical layout of space, that actual furniture, produces interactions. Um, it produces possibilities and impossibilities for interaction. And so we should think about the ways in which physical space can facilitate positive interactions, negative interactions, interactions we want, interactions we don't want. Um, but within this, I sort of think then about the broader account of, of the ecological schools within, within sociology. And the early Chicago school was very much about segregation, uh, how spaces created the possibility of ethnic neighborhoods, and that those ethnic neighborhoods were good to a degree, but they also produced divisions between kinds of people. And so this will be my, kind of my first question, which is, um, Social infrastructure, in some ways, in, in the account, is almost a little binary. Like, there is social infrastructure or there isn't social infrastructure. Um, there are degrees of social infrastructure. We're given, like, examples of this. But, uh, uh, different examples or instantiations. But I'm curious, like, what makes good social infrastructure? It seems to me that the answer to that question is largely the outcome. It facilitates modes of interaction and engagement between people. What makes mediocre social infrastructure? And then what makes it bad? Um, and here, uh, I have two senses of this. One, so social infrastructure, like, say, within the classic Chicago account moving forward, of um, uh, neighborhood projects, uh, which don't really, which had this view of social infrastructure within them, in fact. The idea was to build really tall buildings that had spaces between them where people could interact and light would flow into them and instead resulted in ghettos. Um, and so I'm curious, like, was that predictable? And was there something that was inherently bad about the physical design? Or was it something about the ways in which people occupied those spaces? They systematically occupied them in a particular way, like poor people were there, for example. Um, uh, the second thing I, I wonder about this is to tie this to the idea of sort of social capital. I couldn't help but think all throughout reading this, that social, cap social infrastructure is something that facilitates social capital. And by social capital, um, what I mean is ties and trust between people. So ties between people that are really solidified by trust. But interestingly, in the literature on social capital, you know, for a while there, everybody, after Putnam and, 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 all, and Coleman and folks were like, 
social capital, it's great, it's great, it's great, we should have social capital. And then someone said, what about the Nazis, right? And that's typically the question that, that leads us nowhere. Um, uh, but it's, a, it's kind of an interesting one. And, and it led to sort of a, 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 an account of the dark side of social capital. Um, that it wasn't the case that within Nazi Germany there wasn't social capital. In fact, there was lots of it. It was a really, really rich place of social capital. It was just motivated or, or, or put on a set of tracks in some direction uh, uh, that had horrific results. And so I'm curious, is there a dark side to social infrastructure? Are there ways in which social infrastructure that exists in particular spaces may actually lead to outcomes that are negative? Um, and how do we guard against that? Another way of thinking about this is that the ecological context probably isn't enough. Um, and so what are the cultural elements that we may want to build um, uh, within? And here you'll see me obviously as a cultural sociologist of someone who says there may be dimensions, not just of space that facilitate modes of interactions, but ways in which we demand people interact within those spaces. And it strikes me um, that universities are a really interesting test case and education features, it hasn't featured in the conversation so far, but it features a lot in this book, um, the ways in which schools look and work. And educational institutions are actually a really great instance of, 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 some, of social infrastructure. They're like libraries um, to a degree, but I think to myself, well, one of the challenges that we're facing right now is how do we think about the kinds of speech that we want to have within here, the ways in which people interact, and it's a non-contentious thing. Um, finally, uh, I have two last points here. Uh, I'll skip this one of them. Uh, so, I have, well, I have three. I'll skip one. I, I'm curious, Eric. Like, why didn't libraries work to prevent Trump? And that may seem like it's too high of a bar, right? Like, or, or I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Why didn't libraries work to prevent the situation? So, so like, it's not like we don't have libraries. Like, we have libraries. And so why don't they work better? Why haven't they prevented this? Why do we have these huge political swings and cultural swings within the country? It's, you know, so, like, they're not really that new. And we could, we could potentially have more of it, right? But I'm, I'm curious, like... Could you help me think through, like, you know, in contexts that are infrastructure rich, like New York City, um, it wasn't long ago, 25 years ago, that, like, what was it, 2,500 people were murdered every year in this city, 10 times more than are now? It had very similar social infrastructure. It had very similar, like, it had libraries. They were open. Um, and, and so, like, what happened? Did we get social infrastructure and that went away? Um, this relates back to this. I'm just curious about that as a phenomenon. And then finally, I want to um, build on where also Bruce ended, so I'll, I'll end in the same place. I'm curious about the role of corporations in this and the role of the market um, and um, the, the call for all kinds of sort of infrastructure that's going to be built by the state. Um, it, it seems, I think this is, this is where the naive critique comes from. Like, we can, we can barely make arguments for sustaining any social programs beyond a military, which is not really a social program, although it's a pretty socialist institution um, in its own, its own particular structure. But still, like, how, how are we going to sustain something like this? And I thought to myself, um, this builds on some of the, 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 the work on Astor. Astor, uh, John Jacob Astor, who was one of the wealthiest people in the 
history of the United States, engaged in almost no philanthropy. Um, uh, so, you know, people think like, oh, no, what about the town of Astoria? No, the, the, the area of Astoria named itself Astor in a, an attempt to solicit money from him, right? So it was like kind of a desperate attempt to get cash from somebody who was really rich, and he sort of promised it but never really delivered. He really had one major act of philanthropy upon his death, which was to found a library. And the library was founded down in Lafayette Street, and it uh, was called the Astor Library. And it didn't last that long. Um, and Astor's vision of this library was that it would be open from early in the morning until late in the evening, so the working men of New York would have access to it beyond when they were working. And uh, uh, so it's open down in Lafayette Street, and the explanation for the failure was that, like, nobody wanted to go to their landlord's library. So Astor owned huge portions of land. Most people had to pay rent to his son, and they just kind of didn't want to go there. Um, and, and so the library shutters, and it reopens eventually uh, uh, as the New York Public Library on 42nd Street, um, which is funded not just by the Astor family, but the Tildens and a bunch of others. Um, and we then also have an example of Carnegie, who's building libraries, and now the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, which you sort of pointed to. And I'm curious, like, you know, um, the history of the United States and some of the building of this infrastructure seems to be tied to the philanthropy of billionaires who have extracted so much and created, you know, as, as Bruce indicated, and as you indicated, Eric, like such kind of like horrific working conditions for everyday people, like is this a balance we're, be, we're willing to make? Um, and what do you see as the role of capital in um, the production, maintenance, uh, and sustaining of social infrastructure? Um, I'll remind us that Zuccotti Park is a private park owned by a corporation. Um, and then in some ways, the like association of that park as a kind of public space, you know, it, 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 it glosses over what's happened to this city in terms of uh, a corporation's roles in its ma major transformations. I'll stop. Thank you. Great. Kate, what's your timekeeping Um Okay, you can set the alarm. Okay, <laughs> I think I'll, I'll probably be free. Like, if not, I can if you also have a book say, you can set the alarm. Time's up. <laughs> that's fine. What do you prefer? Um, just tell me when it's time. Okay, that's great. I'll do. Okay, so great to be in this building and among this group. Um, I'm. Um, I was thinking about just telling a story about how I met Eric, and literally, because I think the highest sort of compliment you know I could pay to to Eric is just to sort of give some examples about how his work has been just broadly influential outside um, sociology, because I think that's really what's so exciting about it, is that it kind of um, draws from sociological um, um, examples and contexts, but it's widely applicable to a whole range of disciplines, particularly the spatial disciplines. And so, because I'm sort of new to this environment and maybe to this audience, just a little background, um, um, so I'm a, I'm a landscape architect and an urban designer. And so when we talk about the production of space and so on, literally the, the office um, that um, I founded, which is now based in downtown, we are doing broad scale sort of urban plans. We are also pulling permits, dealing with the Army Corps on like weekly negotiations, talking to the OT about moving, you know, 
one bench five feet this way or talk to the parks department about lowering the height of a fence from five feet to four feet and that's like 10 meetings so you know i would say what's interesting for me is that first of all there are incredibly broad broad principles that um appear in the book and that are incredibly useful in this sort of description of of social infrastructure and that um uh, you know, as, as these vital places, places that bring people together, places, spaces that matter, is of course super inspiring and kind of provides a template for action, really kind of a program for somebody who is literally in the business of kind of trying to choreograph and make space. So um, so my story is really just a little bit to go into um, the rebuild by design process because I think, you know, what's so interesting for me now as a practitioner is how do you literally begin to translate these ideas and examples of what works while avoiding what is the danger zones into literally kind of spatial practice and funding streams and how to kind of start to move these things forward? Because I have a lot of history on the, 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 what you would call, I don't know if you should draw the iceberg of all that sort of dark matter that goes behind what actually goes into making our cities and landscapes and why they look the way that they do, which often has to do with policy or funding streams, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, and so for Rebuild by Design, um, it was a unique moment, frankly, and it's a hard to replicate moment, but it was a unique moment in that um, it was during the Obama presidency, um, and he actually had a, an architect by the name of Sean Donovan uh, in the position of um, HUD secretary, everyone knows what HUD is, right? Housing and Urban Development. But it's an incredibly important <laughs> moment, first of all, that uh, President Obama was looking to spend this disaster relief money that was a tranche that comes through Congress in a way that is not replicating the mistakes of the past, which is build back exactly what was there. You know, they have so many examples of landscapes where, you know, there was a freshwater that was breached by salt water and you actually literally cannot build back what was there without violating your own federal law to do so. I mean, there's so many contradictions uh, implicit in even that just broad uh, statement. But he put into place this Hurricane Rebuilt Sandy Rebuilding Task Force, uh, and it kind of empowered um, um, Secretary Donovan at the time to come up with and devise a way. How can we do something different? And if you know anything about the federal government, that probably alone took probably <laughs> seven months of just lawyers working on the fine print of CBG DR allocation funding. So blah, 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 long story. But so Sean and, uh, met up with a, a gentleman named Hank Ovink, who's based in the Netherlands, who is himself incredibly charismatic uh, personality. And they formed this sort of idea about rebuild by design. And by the time I had been brought on, we were, I would call us like the talent, right? We were this kind of group of one of the 10 firms who were just kind of operating in this incredibly diverse and enabling mixture of policy and analysts. Um, Eric was already on board and, and just by, um, you know, by way of introduction, um, Eric was the uh, research coordinator, right, or senior research advisor of this entire process. But it was from our, from my standpoint, as someone who's working in the physical world, typically with like a program, here's what has to be done, you can do it. It was incredibly open. And, and I think that kind of openness and stance of experimentation and uh, a stance of research that, that was set in those early days by, by Eric and the sort of advisory board literally created a whole different set of outcomes that would have ever kind of um, uh, come out of that process. So 
So rather than say, here's our problem, we've got to solve it, it was a, what is the problem? And, you know, and, and remarkably, and I think this is coming from maybe this cliche of like, if you're a hammer, everything is a nail. If you're a landscape architect or an urban designer, everything has a physical uh, solution. That for me was wildly opened up during one of these first um, uh, research um, uh, collaborations or re research kind of confabs where I remember thinking, um, oh God, I gotta go to this lecture now by the sociologist and I have to learn all this. And, but then of course, it was like totally eye-opening because you know, I think this kind of concept of infrastructure is, is always uh, assumed to be a physical quote unquote solution, right? At least coming from our world, we have infrastructure equals spatial solution made by somebody else. And I think what Eric's book does in those kind of early moments of Rebuild by Design uh, uh, sort of set into motion was a whole different set of, of thought processes and outcomes that integrated in a really exciting way uh, physical kind of concepts that were mass gelled together with or overlaid with social uh, sort of concepts. And, that to me was the big, the, the big sort of wow moment in that in that whole process. So, you know, yeah, I guess I just wanted to to say a little bit more indirectly about um, how this kind of notion of social infrastructure influenced our own thought thought process. Because, you know, literally kind of going in, I'm a landscape architect, very focused on waterways and water bodies, and sort of and had done a project called Oyster Texture before Rebuild by Design that was looking at community-based reef building projects and trying to, you know, um, re-sort of um, strengthen our, our shore, shoreways by investing in ecological infrastructure and investing in, in people and communities that live there. So, you know, Eric's kind of thought process and, and, and um, you know, way of approaching things sort of turned that all on its head. I really thought it was about building a reef, but in reality, it was about bringing people together you know, in such a way that that social infrastructure wasn't a singular physical space, it wasn't a building, it wasn't this, it was literally this act of, of, of sort of working together toward a common purpose and sort of uh, integrated and, and focused on, you know, your immediate environs and, and in your physical landscape. So I would say that was our transformation or tip of the hat to Eric was that it was a transformation, I think, of that concept of infrastructure away from a place of gathering toward an activist kind of notion of, of the, the making of the thing in and of, of itself as a, as a sort of tool for, for bringing people together. But it was, you know, it was a response really to that, that, initial, that initial challenge. And then I'll, I guess I'll just kind of close by saying, you know, back to the, the situation uh, you know, Trump declared infrastructure week. Does everyone remember that? <laughs> Whatever that was, it was very brief, and I don't even know what happened. But, you know, infrastructure week was interpreted as let's repair the potholes or let's build some new roads. Like, that is literally what the broad cultural sort of, or the, the basic understanding of what infrastructure is. But, you know, I think, you, you know, by, by expanding or, or kind of re resetting the notion of infrastructure um, toward landscape and toward people coming together is, is a big step forward. And, and for me, it's, 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 super, it's, it's important because it's pretty clear, at least in the physical landscape, how things 
fall apart and how things, it's so easy just to break things. Things come apart. You can remove an apex predator from a system and things start to spiral down. You can, you know, you can see in like the, 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 the neighborhoods that you've kind of chronicled and especially in heat wave, how even the, taking out some key stores or barbershops or other things literally comprise like the dissolution of what has kept people together. And then to me, that is the question that we're always trying to answer is, it is so easy to break things apart. And what, what is it, you know, how can we put them back, knit things back together? Um, and, and to me, it's that, that combination of, of sort of overlaying um, a social life. And then our case of the Living Breakwaters Project, which was the ultimate kind of reinterpretation of oysters, oyster texture. Uh, which is now a, sort of a similar kind of concept off the shore of, of Staten Island uh, in Raritan Bay. It was literally trying to put things back together by overlaying um, social infrastructure. In that case, overlaying that with the existing city school system, yeah. which was you know not trying to make something new, but sort of overlaying that on top of um, existing school curriculums with a billion oyster project, um, reducing risk in the form of these physical breakwaters that are monitored by uh, these school children and, and, and science teachers on shore, and then uh, redesigning that structure in such a way that it sort of fostered um, a kind of ecological regeneration of shellfish and, and fish pop populations. So, so that's the clue that I get from your book, which is, you know, you can build something over here, or you can talk about social life over here, but until there's a kind of a stronger kind of reconnection of those realms that um, we're not going to <laughs> get to where we, we need to be in terms of post-Trump post and, and kind of putting, putting the pieces back together. Thank you. So Eric will briefly respond to the many interesting questions that were just raised, and then we'll open things up to your questions. So I'll try to hit a few of the big points. Um, first, um, thank, thanks to all three of you. Those were amazingly thoughtful um, and useful. And um, I guess I want to start, Kate, with where you left off mm -hmm. and first say you know, how nice it was to hear that that process did something and worked. Um, it was an extraordinarily special opportunity to be a social scientist and get to lead a process with these designers and engineers who do such extraordinary work and to and for all of us then to collaborate together and build relationships that I think were very unlikely mm -hmm. to happen. I mean it truly was an extraordinary act of political leadership and imagination that led to that process. I mean it's very hard to imagine a process like that happening today or happening in most states. It's an amazing thing. Um, and we were and, and, and there's no question that um, Rebuild by Design made this book possible, shaped the way I think about the world. And one thing was that um, it gave me this very rare opportunity as a social scientist to work with people who build things and th to think really seriously about the work that our concepts do. And so I want to start there because you all got it from Kate, but I'm just going to emphasize it again. <coughs> Many of us in the humanities and social sciences, and this go back, goes back to your Rorty point too, we, we have a tendency to get lost in the critical moment and to not think as much as we could about ways that we could engage the world to, to, to build things. Even build sharper ways of thinking. 
and sharper tools for thinking in the world. And so, you know, I, I, I run this thing called the Institute for Public Knowledge. We spend a lot of time collectively trying to be in the world in a way that's different than conventional academics are in the world. And it feels to me like there really is a moment now to do the kind of collaborative thing that Kate and I did. We don't, you don't necessarily need the big Obama administration project. There are other ways to, to have those collaborations. I just want to say to you, I want to testify that it can be an extraordinarily rewarding experience to not just talk to people in your discipline or field or even in your school and to think about what it means to make, to make a world and not just to deconstruct it. Um, so in terms of your more kind of pointed questions, I guess I want to say about social infrastructure that, um, and so rather than kind of go through every one of the questions, I'm going to try to come up with a couple ideas that bring them together. So social infrastructure for me, it's not that I think that if we just build more libraries, there will be no more Trumps. I mean, I, I don't think that. What I do think is that there are physical places that we could build that could improve conditions of life in a number of ways and in a number of different kinds of places. And I'm going to get a little granular on that later. But I also think that when it comes to the question about polarization and how we think about building some sense of common purpose, that this is an extraordinarily difficult task. Yeah, I'm, I'm not trying to understate just how divided we are and how hard it is for us to, is going to be for us to build bridges. But I cannot see it happening because like one side just comes up with a killer argument and wins that debate at Thanksgiving dinner. You know, I, I, I just, I don't see it happening ideologically. I don't see a, 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 a leading more, you know, figure who comes in and, 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 and guides us all together unless it's by doing it in opposition to one big group. And, so, and suddenly things change. I think that this is a long process and building social infrastructure is for me a necessary first step. Like I, I don't see a way to do it unless we have some kind of collective shared gathering places, unless there's some capacity that we have to be in rooms with each other face to face and iron things out. And in the book I go through some examples of places where I think that happens really well that we tend not to appreciate. I know that it, like when I'm on Twitter, which I love, the conversation goes from like zero to 60 like that. You know, there's so much hate that happens so quickly on Twitter because we're arguing with bubbles on a screen. And, I, and so I do believe that social infrastructure has to be, a, has to be there, has to be there. And the other thing that has to be there to the capital and the state question is publicly funded infrastructure. This is inevitable. I, I'm just gonna tell you, trust me, it's inevitable because we, we literally have, are, are sitting in a moment where like, the infrastructure is collapsing before us. And, the, and, and infrastructure is collapsing in a moment where um, we face extraordinary threats, in, including and especially climate. There are places that will go underwater, that where life will be uninhabitable. And one response to that will inevitably be kind of migration and uncontrolled migration and conflict. But I do believe that over time, um, these are not the kinds of infrastructure investments we're going to make are not going to be the kinds of things that like the Zuckerbergs or the Bezoses or the Gateses are going to be able to build. They, they will build beautiful libraries. They will build a pier somewhere over the river, you know, and they will build beautiful gathering places and parks and places like Tulsa, Oklahoma. And we'll find stories about places like this. But the scale of the, of the problem that not just we in the United States face, but we face globally is like, trillions of dollars. When the World Bank sits down to think about how much money we're going to spend, states will spend on infrastructure, it will be trillions of dollars. And when we 
provide a massive tax cut for the wealthiest people in the country, as we just did, we surely make the work of funding good infrastructure in the United States much more difficult. I mean, that was a catastrophic policy decision for the kinds of projects that we, we have to have. But I, I, I think we will get to a point where if we can't make that investment in infrastructure, things will physically fall apart. And we'll, we'll, we'll be living in a world that, world that looks much more like Blade Runner. You know, where there's some people who are protected and other people who are, who are really not. So I don't see the solution coming from philanthropists, even though I do think philanthropists will build lots of nice things, which we will feel grateful to have. And in retrospect, it was a good thing that Carnegie made those, built those libraries, but a lot of problems did not go away at that time. You know, it took the New Deal, um, you know, and maybe it will take the Green New Deal. So um, last thing um, about the infrastructure and our experience and James' question, like, well, we have libraries right now, you know, like, why do we have Trump? Um, because we do, so, so I think that once upon a time, so I've been reading, um, I, I finished reading my colleague Kim Phillips's, Kim Phillips Fine's great book about New York called Fear City. Do you know this book? It was the finals for the Pulitzer Prize. It's about the moment, the run-up to, uh, you know, the kind of, uh, financialization of the state and uh, the age of austerity in New York City. And, and what Kim describes in this book is the moment, the post-World War II moment, where, where New York City makes this incredible investment in our shared infrastructure. And it actually happens before as well, with like the subways and the parks. And um, uh, Victoria Johnson, who's written about kind of parks in New York, is, is, is here. And at, like once upon a time, we made an amazing investment in the city in amazing social infrastructure. It's worth noting, we did not go for Trump in this place. But we have, we have divested from these public places, from, from, the, from public goods. And we've done it catastrophically around the country. There's a chapter in the book about health that leads with the opioid epidemic, which is, to some great extent, a crisis of disconnection in places that have been eviscerated, um, where, the, where there's not really a landscape of opportunity. But it happens here in New York City, too. And this is the story I'm going to end with. The other day, and then you know, read the story in the New York Times that Amazon has just opened the four-star store in Soho. Did you get read catch this story? No. Do you know about the four? Do you know about the four-star store? Oh, you're gonna love this. Okay, so the four-star store <laughs> is Amazon. It's not right now. It's not replacing every library in New York City, but they do have a new retail prototype, and it's called the four-star store. And as you can imagine, the concept of the four-star store is that Amazon will only stock items that get four stars or more by their raters. And so, and so they have a shop that you should go. It's in Soho. It's a lovely place. And it's Forster Star. So there's a story about this in the Times. I thought, I've got to see this. And being a sociologist <coughs> and a parent, I came up with this great idea for a Sunday morning, which is that my, you know, if you're a parent and sometimes you wake up in the morning, you got your kid, and it's like a lot of hours before dinner time. Yeah. <laughs> and you've got to figure out what to do with your day. And so I, hear, I came up with this idea. We're going to first walk down to the Amazon Four Star store together my book had just come out. And then we're going to walk to my favorite public library. And I, what we're going to do is she's going to have this experience of being in the commercial place, which is like the public sphere is very, you probably noticed, it's very commercialized right now. It tells us to go and spend money. And then we're going to go to the library. And I knew we'd go to, the, to Amazon and it would not be a perfect experience for her. And here's why. We, we do this trip. We go down to the four-star store. It's amazing. They have so much great stuff there. They have that Ramba, that vacuum cleaner that you don't have to hold, you know, just vacuums by itself. They have talking Chewbacca. 
Um, they have very few books, but they have all sorts of amazing things. And there's tons of people there, and they're all laughing and smiling, except at the very end, if you're a nine-year-old girl, because what happened with my daughter is she asked for about $1,400 worth of stuff in 20 minutes or so, which, who could blame her? They have awesome stuff there. Everything had four stars at least. And, <laughs> but at the end of the time, she wanted $1,400, and she was getting nothing. And so that made her very angry at me. And I was, she was very frustrated, didn't feel good, and she had a little, did you have that experience? You go out in New York City, you're walking around, on the one hand, it's really great, and then it's like, oh, I want all this stuff, and I can't have it. And there's something, that's part of what it means to be red state. So then I said, like, now we're gonna go to the library, and I had it all planned out, we're gonna go to the library, she's gonna see all the stuff that she loves, yes, 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 you can have everything, right? <laughs> Except we get to the library, and it's closed. <laughs> Why was it closed? Because it's Sunday. Of course it's closed on Sunday, right? I said, my, oh, she said, oh, it's Sunday. People, everything's closed on Sunday. Why is it closed on Sunday? Do you know that when, the, in the heyday of the New York City public library system, like, Sundays were the busiest days for the library. If you wake up in the morning on a Sunday with your kids and your family and you want to spend time together, there's no better place for you than the library. The library used to be filled with people on Sundays. Now, we have divested so much from our, our public goods, even in the city that remains the leading place for public investment, that of course it's closed on Sunday. Right? It's closed at 6 p.m., which means that people who have jobs from 9 to 5 can't go there. Right? It's, and there and are neighborhoods where it's not even open on Saturday. And, right? and this is the New York public library system, where we've got it good. And, and it turns out there's places like this all over the country where the, the library's diminished. It's not accessible for people with disabilities. The bathrooms don't work. You know, they haven't updated things. There's mold everywhere. We have not invested in these institutions. We're starting to do better, you know? But, but, and the library is just a metaphor. You know, you pick your place. That's a gathering place that's public. Um, we do not have to take it for granted that it's closed on Sunday because it just is. I promise you it was not ordained in the Bible. Yeah. I promise you, you will not find, and the library shall be closed on Sunday in the Bible. It should be open. And, and that is why, in some ways, this book for me is a kind of rallying cry, as well as a kind of attempt to <coughs> provide an account of how social life works. For us to recognize that look, we deserve palaces too. Okay, thank you. Yes. <coughs> I put your book on reserve at the New York Public Library. <laughs> uh, 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 I, I've never thought in terms of social infrastructure. I always think in terms of social cohesion. Um, you, you're, you're familiar with the uh, Oscar Newman's defensible space and perhaps Barry Greenby's spacious dimensions of the human yeah. landscape. And they talk about how, how the physical structure can encourage how people behave in using that space. Yeah. Um, uh, there are very uh, successful intentional communities. Yeah. Uh, there are very successful religious columns um, uh, the Hutterian Society of Brothers, and they're not all James Jones. Um, uh, did you, did you uh, think about um, uh, the, the qualities, uh, like uh, uh, the block voting, I'm very, a big fan of block voting. Uh, people in cognitive developers could, uh, could block vote, the same as the, the Orthodox Jews. Um, did you think about the, 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 the qualities that a society needs to, to encourage uh, social cohesion, the, the, the qualities that draw people together? It's yeah. not just physical. It's not just physical. 
uh, for sure. And 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 in the book, you know, I you know Putnam has some nice language for this, where he talks about bonding social capital and bridging social capital, and you know this kind of idea that social cohesion. And Seamus referred to this, right? If the Nazis are a cohesive social group, then it doesn't get us happy outcomes. So we should be going for something other than you know just cohesion in and of itself. And I do try to think about kind of shared places where people who are different might come together and interact and, and come to appreciate common humanity that these days can be very difficult to see. So like I said, I'm pretty clear that so I have a beef with Mark Zuckerberg and the idea that like Facebook is our social infrastructure. After the, after the election in 2016, Zuckerberg writes this open letter to the two billion Facebook users saying, you know, don't worry, you guys, you know, you don't need, like, we used to have town halls and churches and, then, you know, YMCAs, but Facebook is <coughs> going to be the social infrastructure for the 21st century. And my response to that was, like, that's bullshit. But also, it was that he knows it is because there's nobody on earth who has spent more money on physical social infrastructure than Mark Zuckerberg, which you know if you've ever been to the Facebook campus, mm -hmm. which has every... Like designy feature. Yeah, every possible social space yeah. or you know, cafe. I mean, it's <laughs> like they took yeah. every brilliant architect mm -hmm. and landscape architect, and like they've basically designed the Silicon Valley firms. You know, mm -hmm. Apple's like that, Google Plex is like that, Facebook is like that. So to for them to tell direction. us, don't worry, you guys, you just use your social, you know, media. Yeah, right. And and meanwhile, where it really counts, we're going to invest in this. It doesn't work. So. Um, Interestingly, um, this chap there's a chapter in the book about polarization, and there's also a chapter about crimes that refers to some of the stuff that you're talking about. But in the polarization chapter, um, you know, one of the things I started writing about was the situation of the swimming pools in Iceland, which have gotten a lot of attention because they're shared places where uh, civic life happens in Iceland in these watering holes, you know, the, the hot pots. I thought, oh, that's a really interesting idea that like, pools would be places that would bring people together. But look at the American story of swimming pools, which I write about in the book, is the opposite story. Here, the gathering place that physically works in some context, you know, the story of the, of the American public swimming pool is the story of segregation and racial violence. You know, there's the reasons that race riots have started, you know, on, on beaches and swimming pools. And basically, there's a lot of communities in the United States that refuse to integrate their swimming pools. When they were forced to integrate their swimming pools by law, they closed them down instead. Uh, and so people build private schools. So I think you're, you're, you know, the, the idea, and Seamus said this too, is the, the designing of physical place is not enough. There has to be something else. I actually think programming can be really effective. It's like libraries are not just physical buildings. They're also heavily programmed with librarians um, who do a lot of work of, of, of bridging relationships. And it's an extraordinary thing that there's not lots of private security and policing in libraries. They're, they're, they're not much policed at all given the uh, heterogeneity of the population there, but the but the librarians do a lot to bring out the best of us. Thank you. This was a fascinating conversation all across all different fields. Um, I'm an architectural historian, so I was involved in design, but I look at it from the perspective of history. As I was hearing through the whole conversation, I kept going back and forth with some of Shannon's comments, not like this has been said, tested, criticized over and over. The belief that you know, if you build it, they will come. So, tendency to spatial determinism, so the opposite of Mark Zuckerberg, where you have the technology and then you build the social infrastructure around it. 
you know, can that happen with architecture? But this seems to me a very different exercise, which is not going backwards and trying to be nostalgic or not, but trying to look forward into new models, not how social critique or social analysis can come with this kind of environment. However, the recourse to libraries, swimming pools, can sound perspective nostalgic. Not the way that you're talking about it. I think that my question goes to like, because of these sort of disciplinary crossings, I'd like to ask Eric if you were a designer in the design by uh, building by design exercise, you were not holding as a sociologist, mm. but as a designer, what would be this new technology? Like, if you were, instead of like calling this architect, oh, this is a, a library that you were describing, what if you could not come up with the known technology, the swimming pool, the library? Thing for the world, if I was asking. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm, 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 well, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna answer your question. I mean, I think, like, the, first of all, let's take seriously the idea of collaboration. Though, I mean, so it's not like if I said to Kate, you know, okay, now I want you to give me the sociological argument, she would have some things to say. But like, what's better than having me be the designer is to have Kate and me work together, um, uh, and. Kate and I work together, and um, and 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 we were able to do that. Kate and me, we were able to do that. And we were able to thanks for saying we have another professor. So so it all works out. But so like the thing that came out of it, which was a new typology, I think you would call. I don't know if you call it typology, but like I, Kate didn't say enough about what she did in Staten Island with her design because I think the idea of bridging social infrastructure with the landscape architecture that Kate had is that. Not only is Kate's Living Breakwaters project, which is in Staten Island, do you know this project at all? Not only is it, does it have a, a set of physical features that are going to uh, you know, reduce wave energy and make people safer when there's a storm surge that comes in because you have these kind of natural infrastructure that's built into the landscape, but there's also a, a program that involves inviting people to use the coastal areas in a different way and to learn together in a different way now, those projects turn out to be difficult to sustain politically because in the policy making process, we fund some things, not others. Uh, you know, certain amenities get lost. So I don't and we know. have a water hub. You still have a water it's hub. It's a floating water hub. Still, okay. It's a boat. So, so, so there, so there, so there, what there is in Kate's plan an idea that's not like the library, or the traditional right, right. park, or the traditional school, but there's a, it's a relationship. The, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a kind of there. There is a place that tries to um, uh, operate as social infrastructure while also doing this other thing. And it seems to me like the, the opportunity we have as we start to invest in hard infrastructures, including things like transit infrastructure, is to make sure that we're thinking about how they work as social infrastructure as well. And because every design, I don't know, I, I guess every design has an ideology, but every design will have unanticipated consequences and some consequences that we can try to imagine. And so it, I think inevitably we will miss some of the unanticipated consequences by definition. But it does seem to me like if we're f 
focused on the kinds of social affordances that the places we build generate that we might be able to do better. And the, like the classic case, actually, I think the, it's another design for rebuild, the, the, the kind of what started as the Big U, the Arca Engels project on the Lower East Side, that really takes advantage of this idea because instead of just building a wall, it has this kind of bridging berm, that, like a sloped parkland that goes across the, or, you know, or, or alongside the East River, uh, and that makes it a much more usable space every day than I think the conventional design strategy would be for that kind of place. Can I just jump in for a second? Yeah. One of the and I things still, because I feel bad about it already. <laughs> Actually, my grammar is not too good, so it, no, it's not that. I really, really liked the school drop-off part oh, yeah. in the book. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the, the you know. Yeah. 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 And I'm not. I'm trying to figure out why I like it so much. <laughs> yeah. And maybe it's the the idea you tell of. Tell them what it is. Yeah. Maybe explain. Well, you tell them. Okay. What it is. Okay. So example. so um, <laughs> I, basically, I just compared two different school experiences I had with my kids. I spent a year as a fellow at Stanford, living in the suburbs and Menlo Park, and my kids went to this gorgeous school, this public school, the big campus, <coughs> beautiful land all around it. And the norm at the school is that you drive your kid and there's this huge driveway and all the families just like get in line and you like drop a, off your kid like and you open the door. window. Yeah, <laughs> and, the, and the kid jumps out and you just line up and it's very efficient and everyone's got a nice car because it's Palo Alto and you wave at each yeah. other. But that's it. And so you never talk to the other parents because you're dropping off your kids. And in New York City, whether your kid goes to you know, public school or if it's a neighborhood private school, you typically like you know, you're pretty local and you walk to school and that, like the, at the school that my kids go to, there just happens to be this big sidewalk out in front of it where the parents gather uh, in the morning and the school mandates that parents spend 15 to 20 minutes in the classroom with little kids every morning and so it's ostensibly because the kids need support but actually they're trying to build a community. And so it turns out that the physical layout, the social infrastructure of the schools um, do surprising things. So. What really struck me about this is, again, trying to answer your question. If you were a designer for the social part of the infrastructure, yeah. I imagine you wanting to build some kind of friction in around kind of necessities where people are going to have, it wouldn't just be a leisure choice. Mm. You know, maybe nice. I'll go for a walk down by, nice. the, by the river, nice. right? But I, I would imagine in the spirit of your book that you would want a minimal uh, friction, mm -hmm. so pe you know it wouldn't put too much of a sort of an obligation, mm -hmm. yeah. but it would be built into kind of everyday habits. Yeah, and you know, I like that. You're, you're, I'm we're just gonna, we're going to have you in the next competition. No, no, no. But but what, <laughs> but what you're pointing to, which I think is really right, is that in some ways efficiency, which is so great for us in so many ways, and like as New Yorkers, we love efficiency, right? So much that if we're walking down a block and there are people in our way, we get very, very frustrated, right? Or maybe just yes. me. But um, efficiency is the enemy of, of social life yeah, in, so, in so many ways. interesting, the friction, because I, I guess that my question of mine, I haven't read the book, which I have to, to get to the nitty-gritty of the hospital studies, but every space that we build, um, mm. every environment, has a social infrastructure. Even so the atomization uh, of, of, of life in the city now is a particular form of social infrastructure. And you can even claim a form of palaces for the people. I'm thinking, of course, about all the gilded um, housing units along the Hudson River. It's a different type of palaces for the people. I, I guess that I was just not oh. getting so, so what that type of <coughs> social ideal yeah. uh, is. Yeah, got it. Got it. I, 
come to this discussion from a very, very different place. I'm a community organizer right here in Morningside Heights. And um, it's, it's been fascinating to listen to this conversation because we're involved in trying to rezone this community. There is one public space in this whole neighborhood, and that is the public library, which closes at 7. So if you want to use it for a meeting, you can't. <laughs> I mean, you know, unless people are getting off work and zipping over there. Yeah. So it's, it's a very interesting discussion for me. It's really opened my eyes on a lot of concepts um, that, as a community organizer, are going to be very useful as we go forward in this discussion. And I want to thank you for that, because I never really thought about it. We, I saw the listing about this lecture on, on the, on the uh, Morningside Alliance um, listserv, and I decided, wow, that sounds kind of interesting. I've been a PTA president in a public school here in Manhattan on 96th Street. And the use of, uh, what drew me to it was that there are so many structures now that don't exist for people to gather and for families to gather and for us to yeah. feel like we can, we can come together and make change that is good for all of us. That's, so yeah. it's, well, uh, it's, this has been very, very helpful. I thank you. So thank you. I'm going to bring you to all my talks from now on. And it really is an amazing thing. Like If you think about what are the public places that we have access to, it's basically like the library, which closes early, the park, which is Sometimes it closes early and, and, and not great at night. Um, and the sidewalk, you know, which may or may not work. And it, 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 like, if you think, like, what are the other places that are public gathering places that we have good access to? So when you close the library early, it is consequential because there are communities, you know, community groups all over that could use the library, you know, but have trouble doing it. Well, one quick thing, that, which could work for some but not for everybody. And you know, one thing just uh, it reminded me, Seamus made this point that sociology has been studying kind of ecology. That, you know, I, but social infrastructure is a very different idea than ecology because well, I think for me the concept tells us that these places are built places, they're designed places, they have a politics behind them, that you know, we create them, whereas an ecology is a place that kind of evolves in some natural process that we don't fully control. And I think what you're saying is like, part of our politics should be prying open these gathering places so that we, the people, can use them. And creating the political will. I mean, we talk to, as a, as a community organizer, I am in touch and working with all of our elected officials. When I begin to use words like this um, and concepts like this, we introduce them into the concept of, of the political will to do it. I mean, you know, there's the one thing of create, physically creating the structure, which is critically important. And a good example of that is um, the building, when they built the dorm, the new dorm for um, the, the uh, Manhattan School of Music. The, the Broadway side of that dorm is a brick wall. And what does that say to the rest of us in this community? When they built the new science building on the corner of 120th, which looks like the back of a refrigerator to us, <laughs> though it looks very nice if you're coming at it yeah. from the inside yeah. of the community, what does it say to us about Columbia? Says, <laughs> well, nice to see you. So, you know, these are these are all concepts that make me think. Thank I mean, one other example from the book was the the studio gang concept for Polis, which was this notion of, I mean, if we can't build, I liked your example of like, hey, we're going to do this resilience center. It's called our library. You yeah. could actually do that overlay on other forms of public structures, and that 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 was an example that was about reinventing the, the police station so that as integrating each each police station, which 
and fire station, right, which by law have a certain shed of people that they serve, even just having some multi-purpose room, right, in some of these kinds of facilities would already kind of break some of that open. It's not new, you know, for your kind of challenge, but, but certainly it's, it's this thinking much more broadly about how we invest and the, you know, how to think about our investments in these kinds of facilities in a, in a new way and understanding they yeah. serve multiple purposes and not maybe just, you know, exit, you know, enforcing the law is one of them, but bringing people together to reduce crime <laughs> because they know each other um, or is, is certainly another way of thinking about it. Unmaking a library might need to take into account the common room and who controls the common room as a white space, or sort of the, the norms embedded in these spaces. And having worked in a library, um, I've seen teams of color, like black women, police, uh, told to be quiet, and program programming in libraries sort of reflecting specific, um, I don't want to say civilizing, but um, norms around uh, assimilation or sort of you can get a job if you come to the library, but don't go on Facebook or sort of policing of leisure time on in internet access. Yeah. So I just, in the sense that we're talking about building the world, I want to, I want I wondered if people could speak to or you all could speak to unmaking some of these spaces or the role of um, destruction of some of the norms that control yeah. the common space, even if it's open, yeah. which it isn't in, in a lot of libraries, but once it's open, <coughs> what norms sort of yeah. um, scaffold? Super interesting. Do you want to add on that point? Because you're, you're I was just going to add to that point. I'm, I'm Rob. I work at Columbia Libraries, and I'm also on a public library board in yeah. Westchester County. And I think the point that I was going to make is that mon libraries are not monolithic. Mm -hmm. Libraries are not one size fits all, mm -hmm. and the funding models actually can enable or or prevent access to certain uh, communities. And I think it's something that we should make note of. New York State, in particular, has public funding of a county library system that's pretty efficient. About ninety-five million dollars a year comes down from the state. I've gone and advocated at the state level, and the question I would ask all of us is, if you care about libraries, have you gone to talk to your legislators or your politicians about the importance of libraries? If they're important to you to keep them open on Sundays, have you joined library boards and gone to library board meetings? Um, I had the captain of the Mount Vernon Police Department stop me on a Sunday while mowing the lawn and said, you know, and this is during the big recession of 20, you know, 2008, 2009, said, are you going to close the library on Sunday? Because <laughs> that's not a that's not a given, right? I said, why? He said, well, because that's the only time I have to get my degree uh, to, to get out of the house and study. And I said, no, we're going to try everything we can. And we did not close libraries on Sunday. Yeah. So the, the business decision around opening and closing is a funding decision. The question really is, how are you going to represent your interests or represent more diverse interests? And, and it's a participatory process. And the only thing I would add to that is it is a public-private partnership in terms of libraries today, because friends of libraries are often ways in which we receive support from, from the private citizens as well as corporations in the community that allow us to co-op some of the, the approaches, but not necessarily co-op the values. And then just one final note about social infrastructure and Facebook. We don't get a, a driver's license from General Motors or Ford. We get a driver's license that asserts our identity so that we get a relationship on the road with uh, the Motor Vehicle Bureau. Now, we can talk about the efficiency of Motor Vehicle Bureau, but it is a government-sponsored way of getting an ID. 
And we've outsourced identity management in our digital social infrastructure to for-profit corporations. And we as a civilization, as a society, have to decide whether that's in our best interest. Because there are outcomes of letting for-profit entities manage your identity in a digital space that have ramifications for what we do in the real world. So, Can yeah. I just yeah. ask a question yeah. that I think has been running through a lot of the comments, I think especially gets back to what you were saying, but also to what Rob is saying and to points people made. And you started out by saying that you don't really think you're an optimist, but people are saying this is an optimistic book. And I think that a, a current that we are hearing is, is the social a principle of cohesion? If it is, is social cohesion always a good thing? And what about the extent to which conflict, domination, and inequality are all part of social life? And anything that promotes social togetherness will bring those things in its wake. And so a library that was designed to be open and to be public <coughs> and to integrate people may also have discriminatory effects in its very openness. And so is this, so, you know, how do, I, I think that part of the question is what do we need to add to the social to make it have positive outcomes? Because in and of itself, the social is not purely positive. No, and n nor do I depict it that way you know, in the book. Um, and in that sense, I, I hope the book does not read as a work of nostalgia, as some, you know, it's, it's, it's right, not, I mean, it's not a book that harkens back examples. to a better time when, you know, we all got along, because I don't think that, that that is real. And I do think that conflict is not um, and, I, and so then the question is like, given that conflict is inevitable, are there places where it's going to be better managed, handled more humanely, and there are places where it's likely to be more explosive and violent? So like, let's take the wall as a social infrastructure. It turns out that is the biggest idea that our president has for infrastructure right now. And there's a battle going on in Congress, right? Right now, this week, about like how much money, how many billions of dollars will we give to the wall? And by the way, the Democrats are like, they're willing to give some billion, some dollars for the wall. It's not like we will not do the wall. You know, Schumer's got the wall on the table. So that's our big infrastructure idea. So let's take the wall. The wall's an infrastructure that it, it hardens our divisions. I mean, it's an anti-social infrastructure, right? It hardens our divisions. Uh, it turns us against one another. I suppose if you did an ethnography of like the wall uh, in, in Israel, Palestine, you would find like some surprising sparks of social life of people who came together and you know that have actually led some things like that. But for the most part, what it does is it turns people against one another. So we saw over the weekend, you know, this kind of tear gas and the violence that feels like the inevitable outcome <coughs> of the wall. You know, whereas the library as a social infrastructure promises something different, right? And so I don't doubt that there are conflicts at the library over the control of space. I don't doubt that there are some librarians who see it as their job to make sure that you know, you're only doing proper things on the computers. Now that could mean like no porn, but it could also mean like no video games or no social media. Um, and those kinds of conflicts you know, do happen and I observe them. I will say this by way of comparison. Um, I spent a lot of time in the area, like the most the place I spent the most time doing this ethnographic fieldwork for the book is the library in Seward Park on the Lower East Side. I spent a lot of time around the neighborhood because it's a place that's incredibly interesting. It's you know Lower East Side, so it's still thick with immigrants, still got concentrated poverty, but 
But as you know, it's also going through intense gentrification. Like, if you are looking to get a $7 ice cream cone, you will find it in Seward Park. You know, you can definitely find that on the Lower East Side. And so there's a bunch of things in the social environment there that make people who've been there for a long time or who were told to go there feel like they don't belong. And it's not just the $7 ice cream cone or the coffee shop that doesn't take cash. Thank you very much. So you're not welcome. It's also, like, if you go into the Dunkin' Donuts, there's a sign that says, or you go to the McDonald's, there's a sign on the wall that says, no loitering, you know, guests are welcome for 30 minutes. Now, I could sit at the table for all, you know, as long as I want, but we know that not everybody can do that, right? And in McDonald's in Queens, a few years ago, this group of Korean, you know, older Koreans were like kicked out after they ordered and ate because the manager didn't let them around. And you all know what happened in Starbucks this summer, right? So like, you know, this guy, did they get asked, politely asked to leave the store? Did they say, please come order something? These two guys who were waiting for their friend got arrested for being there. So by comparison, a library is an extraordinarily open place, despite the difficulties on the staff and, the, and, the, and some of those norms. And also, I will say that libraries, because we have divested so much from <coughs> other kinds of social services, libraries get this impossible community of you know, homeless people, people with drug addiction, uh, you know, older people who are alone, very little children, uh, you know, people who come in um, you know, to use the internet. There's all kinds of people who are professionals who want to work there. And, and the amazing thing to me, having spent pretty much every day in the library for a year, is that I can count on one hand the number of times when security had to be called in to deal with a problem. Because there was something about the physical space and the program and the staff that made the library work better as a social space. So in my view, it's, I don't think that we can architect out conflict. I don't think that we can program out you know, domination. You know, I, I don't have that much faith in what Kate does in her profession, even though I think landscape architecture and architecture is really cool, really cool. But I do think that um, we can do so much more to make the places that we inhabit work better. And I think also that we have parts of the university that are called like the architecture school um, that shouldn't be shouldering that burden all on their own. And I guess if there's anything I learned from the process <coughs> of being rebuilt by design and then writing this book, is that there are possibilities for conversations, not just inside the university. We have a community organizer who's in the neighborhood who has some insight on what it looks like to be on the backside, you know, of the Columbia building, right? Like there are conversations that should be happening more often. And part of that is about kind of taking down walls. And I guess this is probably like a good place to end. Um, it's again about the qualities of the room. And I like when I first started giving talks about the book, because I'm an academic, I was like, oh, I've got to have this PowerPoint. I'm going to show, like, and I like to show the designs and, and you know, have these images. And I realized, and I have awesome PowerPoints, you know, really good PowerPoints. But I realized that there is something amazing and better about just going into a room and having a conversation. Um, it's just nice to do this. And I think if we did this, if we found a way to do this more often, like, we wouldn't get over all of our problems. Um, but I think we could solve a lot more of them. So thanks to all of you guys. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast featuring Eric Klinenberg's book, Palaces for the People. 
from Columbia University's Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Ann Levitsky.